podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. Lots, as always, to talk about in today's show. We'll be looking back at the first three T20Is of the India-England series, revelling in Mark Wood's superb outings with the ball, Josh Butler's runs at the top of the order, an eventful week in the Caribbean, some news from the Shires and much more. I'm Yaz Rana and to talk through all that with me is the managing editor of Wisden.com, Ben Gardner, and the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. There's a new issue that goes to print today and comes out next week. So let's start in India. England are 2-1 up with two games to play. Um, and Joe, arguably the biggest positive for England thus far has been the performances of Mark Wood, who took 1-20 from four overs in the opener, missed a second with a niggle and took three for 31 in the third T20i. Yeah, it's been fantastic to watch. And there's always those concerns when you hear that Mark Wood couldn't play the second game. You think, oh no, has, has he been crocked again? And then to bowl like he did in that third match, which was just kind of eye-wateringly quick. Uh, it's just fantastic to watch. And it's so good. He had a bit of a miserable time in the... Uh, in the test series and he didn't play he just sat around went home came back um so it's great to see him doing really what he does best now and i think that's quite an interesting question over the next months by bowling this well in t20s is he actually harming his test chances because uh we've seen that england are prioritizing or certainly deciding which players suit which formats at which times and and Mark Wood, you'd have to say, is much more valuable to england's t20 world cup prospects than he is to their test summer i would say um, that's not to say he can't play any test cricket but I don't think we'll see a lot of him in test cricket this summer uh, and I think he'll be kind of wrapped in cotton wool to an extent uh, ahead of that T20 World Cup yeah I think that's fine though personally I mean you might do he he might not well yeah but 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 I think he should see it as a bit of a, a bonus because he's never been as effective in England as he has been overseas I think there's a real chance for him this winter to go and bowl England very quickly to a T20 World Cup and then to go on an Ashes tour where even if he plays throughout the five games, he could well play a huge part in that as well. I think that England would be absolutely right to... I mean, even if they decide that he's very important for that Ashes series, I still think that, like, I don't know what you gain from bowling Mark Wood in England when we have so many bowlers who are so effective here and Ollie Stone, who's come as sort of like a pace option as well. I think if England want a pace option, they should go with Stone or Archer and just, I think it'd be absolutely right to leave Wood to one side for the moment, I think. I, I don't disagree. I just think it is hard to say, Mark, you haven't played, you played two tests this year, now go and win us the Ashes. And I think that's a tricky thing to do. The thing is, we would, he has shown before that he can come from seemingly nowhere, uh, like he did in the Caribbean a couple of years ago, uh, and bowl at the speed of light and win a test match for, for England. Um, but yeah, I think, I think I agree. I think that is how they handle him. And it's no reflection on, on him. Uh, and it might well secure him a pretty lucrative IPL deal uh, come this time next year uh, which you kind of feel like he deserves given the the career he's had is it kind of fair that this is kind of snuck up on us that how important Mark Wood is to England's T20 side I don't think people really have been talking about that that much Um, I know you can kind of split Wood's career almost pre St Lucia test and post St Lucia test but he's um, we're looking today and he's barely played much T20 cricket in the last four years 19 games since the start of 2017 and for reference Chris Jordan has played well over 100 um, but now he's kind of at a level that I don't. I'm, I'm, I know that he, people have thought that he can he, he bowls really quickly and he's a better bowler than he was in the past. But this series, he's almost at an, another level completely. Like the delivery to get rid of KL Rahul, 90, 90 mile per hour coming into him, completely getting through one of the best T Twenty players in the world. Um, like he's he's really pivotal to this England side success. Yeah. Um, so we we had Ben Jones of Crickviz write a piece about Mark Wood uh, for the website today. And he's bowled, in the last year, he's bowled four of the fastest six spells by an England bowler in T20i cricket. Uh, and two of those have come in this series. So he's uh, he's bowling seriously quickly. And I think that's a lot of made of, which we'll come on to later, the toss in this series. But you saw how much England missed him in that second game as well. I mean, as much as I think England actually did okay with the bat, even though they were struggling to get up to 164 or whatever it was. But then... Tom Curran especially looked like he struggled with the ball and they didn't have that same penetration up the top and then England, uh, India just knocked off the runs fairly easily after that. And so, and yeah, we one of England's defining problems uh, with their T20 side has been power play wickets and Wood seems to have answered that pretty emphatically. And, and that he's doing on these kind of wickets as well, which haven't been 
the quickest really actually it's almost been the opposite is the issue and really struggled for their timing that he is still coming in and like blowing batsmen away is, is remarkable really but i think you're right yeah i think it has crept up on us uh a little bit because i'd certainly remember us talking on this podcast about mark wood as a t20 bowler and us questioning whether he has the kind of skills for the format um but the way he's bowling it is kind of almost obsolete if he's going to bowl that quick and he's got such good control of line and length and he's got a clearly defined role in that side then then he doesn't really need three different types of slower ball uh, in the way that someone like Tom Curran absolutely does. Uh, so I think it, it has come and surprised us. And I think you also see when you watch Wood and Archer in tandem as they were in that third match in particular, you just think these two have got to play and they've got to be bowling together at certain times as well because it just makes life so hard for batsmen. Uh, and suddenly England's seam attack, which has looked a little bit kind of pedestrian at times, now looks really threatening uh kind of throughout the innings um and obviously you've got Adil Rashid up your sleeve who's now bowling with a new ball uh, as well as in the middle and doing a fantastic job of both I think Wood's Wood's success kind of reminds me of Nork here in the IPL not he didn't really have a reputation for being a gun t20 bowler but I guess when you when you bowl that quick it is quite simple if you bowl 92 miles per hour consistently which would pretty much average in the first t20i um, it's just quite hard for pretty much every batsman other than maybe Virat Kohli to deal with. Um, I think it's quite interesting that Rashid's being used in the in, in the power play because I think, Joe, you're right. If you look through the innings, you kind of see England almost almost a fine in each phase of the innings in a way they probably weren't that recently with now Rashid, Archer and Wood in the power play, Wood in the middle overs. You kind of got Stokes, Curran and Jordan a little bit in the middle and then Jordan and Archer towards the end. It kind of feels like they have most if not all bases covered with the ball with their first choice seam attack yeah the, the question will be when they come up against a surface that you know turns significantly which none of these have yet or not not even significantly but just enough that makes a, a spinner much more effective than a than a seamer like in this series the teams have gone in with two very different attacks with India often having three spinners in England just the one in Rashid and it's I wonder if Moeen will get I hope he will get a run out in the fourth or fifth game just so that kind of see where he is basically but if England don't have that sort of that second spinner that they can really rely on I remember in the 2016 World T20 there was a game where uh where New Zealand played India and New Zealand basically beat India at their own game I think picking three or four spinners I think had a Adam, Mitch Sodi took quite a few wickets didn't he yeah game. Mitch yeah. bowled really well as well yeah. and uh and, and and that and that can happen in a global tournament that's almost where you come up with against a, a greater variety of of surfaces and that and I think that it, that's the base thing and don't have covered. They have a, yes, for their first choice team, for their kind of first choice game plan, will work on a lot of surfaces, but I don't think they yet are absolutely certain that they can sort of like adapt to the more sluggish wickets, especially the wickets that, that turn with that attack. I think that's the, the question. It is interesting that we're three matches into the series and, and we haven't seen Mo and Ali because when England were winning in South Africa, we're saying, well, this is great. They're playing fantastically, but this obviously can't really be the side that wins the T20 World Cup in India because they've only got the one spinner and they haven't really got a part-time spin option there if, if Root's not going to play, which seems likely. Uh, but now we're, we're three matches into an India series and, and England are going well without Mo and Ali. And now suddenly you're thinking, well, they wouldn't be playing this side if they have no intention of playing it come the T20 World Cup. So actually, perhaps this is just their first choice team that's not to say you don't need that second spinner and you might possibly need that third if we do come across the, the kind of pitches that you might well do in a, in a tournament. Um, but it does seem that they have landed upon this side and thought, well, this is the side that suits us. It goes against the grain in T20 cricket where spin is so important, but England play to their strengths and, and that's what that's what they've done so far. I think the fact that the, the, the whole series is being played at one venue is quite important. We're not learning that much about what conditions are going to be like in all of India. And it's also a venue that hasn't had any international T20 cricket at before. Um, yeah, and, and also, it's not based on much. But I do wonder if you kind of see a lot of spin in T20, T20 cricket because like kind of six out of 10 spin is better than six out of 10 pace. But if you actually got like four gun quicks who do different things does actually that that attack is almost more well-rounded um so yeah that is interesting we, we kind of touched upon Tom Curran a little bit already but and I know he only bowled two overs and he's not played a whole lot of cricket recently but his position in the squad is is under a bit of threat do you think Ben um he's not he's not gone great for England recently in T20 cricket I know he's won games for England in the past he didn't have a great IPL either and there are players outside the squad who 
could feasibly offer a bit more than he he has recently yeah I, th- I think you know there's a long time to go between now and that t20 world cup uh, and he obviously you know he, he i mean it was just two overs so you can't read too much into it and i think england do have a lot of faith in him and it goes back really to that that odi when he sort of made his name just after the ashes when he took five wickets england were defending like sort of like a nip and tuck 280 plays 275 sort of game and he really sort of stood up then and looked like a bowler who had the metal for international cricket and knew how he could like sort of second guess batsman with his variation that sort of thing so I think that he still does have some faith and it goes back as far as that uh but yeah England do have options uh that they can you know that that could feasibly overtake him I mean Reese Topley is in the squad I think it'd be interesting to see how he went he offers off a different angle he's a little bit quicker than Curran even though he doesn't have the same uh you know struggle with injuries doesn't have the same experience uh recently in terms of how much he's just played in in T20 cricket uh Tamal Mills is someone who I think the the, the numbers geeks uh, rate as one of the best death bowlers in, in in the world, actually, in terms of his economy towards the end of the innings, uh, but hasn't had much of a go with England since, I think, 2017 was his last game for England. Um, so he is also one. I mean, the, he, yeah, I guess the thing with Tom Curran is he, he, he is a death bowler, but I think they kind of think maybe he can do a few different roles, whereas Mills is very much a specialist death bowler. So he does offer you something more well-rounded. But yeah, I think he's under a bit of pressure, but there is a lot of time for him to sort of get it right between now and then and who and who have even who doesn't play much in the IPL have a season in the nets with those bowling at those batsmen and uh playing with those coaches and stuff so that will uh that could well help so I, I don't think it's 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 I think there's there is a bit of pressure on him and it is interesting how his stock has fallen from him being almost first choice before the world cup before Archer's emergence to where he is now but I uh yeah I don't, I don't think it's at the point yet where we're sort of you know writing obituaries for Archer's uh, for for Curran's uh, England career. But yeah, a little bit of pressure, I suppose. Zaki Mahmood is, is the one for me. I mean, Tamar Mills is, is kind of tantalising, but his fitness issue, issues mean that it's hard to necessarily bank on him. I think he's going to get enough cricket in before that tournament, but he's certainly an exciting prospect. But Zaki Mahmood, I think he's... I've seen highlights of him bowling the PSL. He swings it late. I also think he's got a really... He's got a higher ceiling than Tom Curran. I think he... he I think the thing they like a lot about Tom Curran, and you can see it just in the way he plays, he's got this kind of big match, big moment temperament. He wants the ball when things are tough. And you can see why Owen Morgan loves that in him. But he does look quite hittable sometimes. It, it looks like batsmen can get into a rhythm against him. And, it, and it, sometimes it looks like he doesn't have uh, really anywhere to go. And I think that's partly a lack of pace at, at times. Um, he's got lots of good slow ball variations, but it does seem like batsmen can, can read those uh, quite often. So I think he is a bit under a bit of pressure. He but he, he does also offer more with the bat. Um, he's not going to be batting high in this side, but but those lower order runs, he's obviously got that in favour over Saki Mahmood. But I think over the next few months, Saki Mahmood is the one that I would be watching as potentially going to leapfrog Tom Curran. He does the same thing with the bat as well. He's like a you know he might he might not his statistics might not leap on the out of the page as a batsman in T20 cricket, but you've seen it for Surrey where there's been sort of real sort of crunch moments in games or when his team's been really under the pump, that's when he tends to step up. So I, there is a lot to like about him as a cricketer, I think. Uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's almost like there's lots of reasons like him beyond his skill set, which is actually the thing that's, that's lacking. It's the question of if that can outweigh the fact that there's bowlers who on paper look better, I guess. Mm. So. Yeah, I would contest that you don't need to have access to the Crickviz database to be excited by Tamar Mills. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, what, what, what will be interesting over the next, I don't know what, six seven months before the world cup is uh let's say england win this series three three two four one whatever um they don't have that many games before the the world cup proper preparation really starts in october um later this year so i wonder how much emphasis they'll put on strong performances in the t20 blast and particularly the 100 for for players like tomorrow mills or sakeem mahmood who aren't playing in the ipl like will if one of those two guys has a gun tournament would they um I guess it is somewhat of a risk because they've not actually played that much for England recently. I wonder if that will happen because there aren't that many opportunities between the 100 and the World Cup starting for those guys to play for England. Yeah, I, we know how much um, stock Morgan puts in in trust and knowing players and knowing them as personalities as well as cricketers, really. Uh, so I think anyone who's not part of the group now... Uh, it's going to be hard pushed to get into it, really, particularly when you think of the talent they've got. Sakeem Mahmood is a bit different because he has been part of that setup. He's he's played 50 over and T20 cricket for England. Morgan knows him well. I think the idea that someone is going to have such a brilliant 100 or maybe even T20 blast and then gets parachuted into the squad, I think is probably going to be 
it's kind of England of the old days, isn't it? And actually, they're in a, such a strong position. They don't really need that to happen now. I think it would only mean very slight adjustments among the group that we've already got. Yeah, the only thing I would say is, is, is when you're looking for the, the 15th player in a 15, that sometimes I think you can get just a little bit more leeway. So just looking back to the last World T20, Liam Dawson was picked for that squad, having not played a professional game for England at that point. Um, so I think, and, and I guess the difference between now and then is how serious England take the format, I guess, and also just how good England are at white ball cricket overall. But um, and I guess the the other thing as well is that there's actually there's more names than we've mentioned even then. You know, Pat Brown looked like a bowler who coped with international cricket in New Zealand and has struggled with injury since. But he's clearly highly rated, clearly got a lot of skills, and that's could work in his favour. Someone like Matt Parkinson as well again didn't look overawed. Just like bring something different as a leg spinner who bowls it slowly and really rips it. That could be very valuable on a pitch that is spinning because he'll get the most out of it. I think that there's. Restock Blue's in the squad. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think I think that, that there are a lot of players who will be thinking that. But I think Joe, Joe is right that there is it's it's a different scenario now. But I wouldn't. I think the players at least will still be thinking a good hundred and maybe open the shout. And also, there's another T20 World Cup next year. So even if you're not yeah. in it for for this one, then. And actually, I would add. Sorry to slightly contradict myself. Uh, I do think that that spin is a bit different for the spinners because there is that dearth of spin options. Uh, someone like Danny Briggs, who I think was a backup for this tour, is that right? He was called up as a backup recently. Yeah, I don't think he's there, but he's one of yeah, the Yeah, he's obviously played for them before, but not under Morgan. He He's someone who you could see potentially coming into it, or even someone, I mean, someone like Dan Moriarty at Surrey, that would be a real bolter. But I think that there is that dearth of spin options, that that is the area where you could see someone potentially coming from um, from nowhere. Or Liam Dawson just takes his um, normal spot on the England squad without playing between each tournament. It's as well. probably more likely. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was quite a lot of chat on um, on on Sky about how uh, much of an advantage it is chasing in T Twenty cricket, particularly in day night games in the subcontinent. Uh, all three games in the series so far have been won by the side chasing. The recent uh, PSL uh, was dominated by sides chasing and Nasser Hussain had quite an interesting analogy to explain why because he basically said like imagine playing beach cricket and if it's really dry the ball doesn't come onto the bat at all but if the tide comes in makes it damp suddenly the ball really skids through and he said that's that's kind of what happens uh, with the dew and he used the example of the second T20i where England really struggled to time the ball in when they batted first but it was fine for India I'm not convinced that in that 15 minute innings break it completely changes but um, it is interesting and the, the stats kind of show that it has been quite a big advantage recently um, Michael Atherton suggested that you could have a situation where um, to kind of get around the, the advantage of batting second one side bats for 10 overs the second side bats for tw- has their full innings of 20 overs and the side that batted first then has 10 overs at the very end what do you reckon about that? I, th- I think it's, <laughs> it's it's probably slightly too much of an alteration uh, f- for me. Coming I think from you, Ben, you, <laughs> you love an alteration. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you know, uh, that that would take it that make a game take quite a long time. I think first of all, if you have two innings breaks rather than one, I'll say you know that 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 team that have the split innings, I think, would probably still struggle in terms of you know you've got a batsman who's set. I mean. Uh, imagine Davman having to take score 20 or 20 twice before he can accelerate that would be a uh, a, t- a tough thing uh, so yeah I, th- I think that's a little bit extreme uh, but you know I mean if, if people do if this does become a huge dominant thing I think they, they showed this out something like 65-35 which is a big split but I don't think it's a that's not too much is it I yeah think, I think quite a lot that's like double double your chance of winning if you if you bat second yeah but then the toss is an important thing in cricket. It, yeah. it always has been. I think we don't don't need to start changing that necessarily. I think if the trend got worse than that, it, it perhaps it would need looking at. And he was saying it's often specific to this part of the world where, where the, the dew becomes such a factor. It would be a shame if we had a World Cup where it got to the point where we're talking 80, 85% of teams batting second win mm. because it is such an open tournament. And gem- I mean, we think England and India are perhaps a bit better than the rest, but not not much. It's all pretty even. So it would be a shame if if it was really the toss that was determining those matches between some quite uh, kind of equal sides. You had a pretty wacky solution. Yeah, well, I, I have to be honest, I haven't really looked into it in huge detail, but something that I've seen suggested is sort of like a, you replace the toss with sort of a, a bidding system where each side, each captain sort of says they'll concede 15 runs or have many runs for the option of bowling first or batting first, whichever they'd rather do. And then whoever has the higher bid gets their choice, but the other side get that that sort of bonus, which I guess is, you know, 
the captains couldn't complain in that situation because it is something that they've absolutely agreed to in terms of if you lose because of that extra bit of runs well that's what you said that's what you thought it was worth uh i mean it's it, you know it's a bit fiddly possibly it's a bit uh sort of hard to explain to a newbie for us what was already uh having it's to not deal really with that fitting that that kind of what you, what you want for T20 to make it nice and easy and simple for everyone to understand. Yeah, it? but but you know the, the the BBO has this this bat flip because they have sort of like a some sort of funky envelope thing that makes it look all glamorous and then you know I mean people watch <laughs> Deal or No Deal which is just people opening boxes. This is just that, but the start of a uh, of a cricket match. And with this kind of bartering that you describe sort of take place at the middle where you've got Ian Bishop and you've got the two captains. I think so because it's just a closed envelope thing. So you just, you just come in with your two with your closed envelope. You each hand it to yeah, sort of like Ian Bishop. Deal or No then, Deal. Exactly. Kind of yeah, and, and then and then he opens it and says, and Owen Morgan's bid fishing runs, and Cody's bid 17 runs, and he will be back. <laughs> and that sounds like quite a good so. game in itself, playing <laughs> yeah. cricket after it. But. Yeah, maybe he says use it for the 100. On, on England's batting, uh, Jason Roy has returned to some sort of form. Uh, Butler scored a career-best T20 I score in the third game. The, the where-should-Butler-bat debate has pretty much ended, basically because he averages 50 there, has seven 50s in 17 games. But... Ben, did we did we see the risk of opening with Butler in the second game with with Stokes struggling to get going towards the end of the innings at number six? Stokes and Butler do basically back the other way around in the IPL for Radisson Royals. Yeah, I think it, I think it is a tricky one, and you get quite a lot of quite definitive statements made about something that really I don't think there's actually a way to have a, a correct answer on this because you know every time England lose, it's sort of uh, an argument for why Butler should finish and every time they win it's not even why he should open really I think the um because what you have with Butler is quite a unique situation where he's England's best opener and their best finisher I think and sometimes uh, when he opens he can do both yeah exactly yeah and uh, and then the situation with England is is that you know if, if you're an opener you have more uh, opportunity to influence the game so if you want to maximize Josh Butler himself you'd open with him but England have more opening options you know there's Stokes best it was slightly out of place at number four possibly uh so you'd it, it, in a way it makes more sense to have a lineup with uh without butler opening so he can sort of float and come in uh, in a way that you know andre russell does ab de villiers does you know not every amazing t20 batsman opens the innings uh but yeah i, I think i think the debate has pretty much ended not least because it seems that morgan's pretty settled on that way and i think you do because um, that second t20 actually in a way it was a uh, because you know it wasn't just stoke strong at the end it was butler out so early is not just a, uh, an early wicket. It's an early wicket of Butler, which can give a team a sort of a, a psychological fillip early on. Um, but if you have him finishing in that situation and England are three or four down, but it's three or four other batsmen, that can still leave just too big a hole for Butler to, to make up, I think. I don't think because you have that less opportunity to influence the game as a finisher. If he comes in at, you know, 10 overs in England are 40 for four, then there's only so much even Joss Butler can do. So I think... Yeah, and but it's it's worth dwelling on just how good he was in that third T twenty I because Coley at the halfway stage everyone was going nuts over Coley's innings because he'd sort of got took taken his time to get set and then batted on a completely different surface to anyone else. Joss Butler did that except he didn't even need to take any time to get set. He was twenty off nine balls at at one point he was threatening England's fastest ever T twenty half century. Uh, and on a surface where basically no one else was able to to time it at all, he, and he and he has that ability. I mean, he's a he can score very quickly. He can sort of adapt his game to different surfaces while still scoring as quickly. He's an absolute freak, and it showed just why he's one of the best in the world. Well, there was, there was one of the T Twenties in the summer where Owen Morgan said after the game that England misread the pitch because of how well Butler batted on it at the start. Yeah, um, and then the. The, the, the rest of the England batting order were trying too hard to get England up to 200 when, they just, when the pitch wasn't great. Um, yeah, I, I, I get... I, I Six months ago, I, I thought he should bat in the middle because that's England's weakness and he's so much better than anyone else. But if he's scoring seven fifties in 17 games, he's just going to win England by 30% of the game just by himself. So it's... Well, yeah, I was also in the save Butler as a finisher yeah. camp. But... Um... Yeah, I mean, you can't really. It's hard to make that argument given what you see he's doing at the top of the order. I would also add to that as well that Morgan has become such a reliable source of runs in that middle order and also the way he bats, the way he can find a boundary when the chase is on. We know he's a very cool customer. That helps a lot, really. You've got a kind of almost as good as Butler finisher in the Butler role, the former Butler role. Uh, and as you say, when you've got Butler at top, he can do 
you can do both jobs. Uh, he's also just so brilliant at um, analysing a situation, scripting a chase, which are all brilliant things to do as a finisher, obviously. But they're kind of even more useful when you're open because you can set the tone for the whole the whole thing. And uh, yeah, I think I think where they are now is is they landed at the right place, even though quite a lot of us disagreed with uh, Owen Morgan, which I guess is not for the first time he's been he's been proved right. I I, I do think though that you, it's 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 right to question whether England have found Ben Stokes's best role because I don't think they they have basically. And he's yeah he he, he struggled. Injury because he thinks he's such a powerful hitter and such a clean ball striker but he does struggle to do that from ball one and that's even what we've seen in to be honest in all his kind of like defining innings he couldn't do it in the uh it's not we did it headingly it's not we did in the world cup final those were games where he scrapped and then when he had his eye and he was hitting out that's that's kind of always been his method actually um obviously you're not going to be dropping ben stokes because he's ben stokes and there's every chance as well that um he just improves in that role i think like ben stokes was not a brilliant odi batsman when he started out, but he became one the same in test cricket. It wasn't a brilliant test batsman that he now is. Uh, and if he follows that same path in T20 cricket, then uh, England can expect that he can improve, I think. Uh, but I would just like to see a little bit more flexibility in terms of the batting order. Like I almost think that in, if you're batting first uh, and it's the 20th over, I would almost rather have Sam Curran, possibly even Joffre Archer, walking in to hit sixes from ball one than Ben Stokes but on the other side if England were to lose a wicket first or second over we know that Ben Stokes is a very good T20 opener and he can also he's good in a way of laying the platform and going big which means that he can uh, sort of deal with the sort of the you know the pressure that comes on if you've lost the early wicket so I would like him possibly as an option to be promoted in that circumstance so he's sort of like a floating firefighter in a way rather than a like a finisher who always comes in at number six come what may I think. You're kind of getting in Shane Warne territory there with Archer, <laughs> Archer ahead of uh, Stokes. Archer has to bat recklessly, but not aggressively. <laughs> the, uh... Uh, that's in reference to a, a Shane Warne tweet during the day-night test. Um, that, that is interesting, though. You wrote you wrote a piece about uh, how England should use Milan in particular, and you weren't you weren't calling for, for for Milan to be dropped. You were you were saying that if England do lose a really early wicket, Mil- Milan, who does take a while to get going he should have that period later on in the innings when power play runs are actually really important. It gets someone like Stokes in at three, then Milan ideally comes in around about the sixth over. Um, so he takes a while to get going in the period of the innings that typically the the scoring rate is at its lowest anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of instances recently where, like, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's worth just emphasising that Milan, obviously, his record as it stands sort of almost, uh, sort of, you can't really criticize him in a way and that's fair enough and there's a lot of his his fans that will say that uh his his method is sort of established uh in that he will sort of you know start slowly and then accelerate dramatically uh but it's i don't think it's right to criticize him when he gets out on 20 off 20 balls really because that's that that is just the way he plays it's the way he's been successful it's the way he's kind of always been successful like in in in, in domestic cricket as well and i think england know that as well i think they know that that's the type of innings that Milan is going to play and it is going to at the moment it's won them a lot more games and it's sort of hurt them in uh the question is 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 yeah as you say when he should be doing that so I think in that second T20i he was 18 off 18 uh, at the end of the power play and you know everyone struggled on that surface Jason Roy I think was only 20 off 18 at the same point but Jason Roy was you know he was trying to hit boundaries and not managing to Milan I think there was staff groups to show that his attack intent whatever was not uh, anywhere near what Jason Royce was. He was basically trying to do that thing that he was doing and succeeding, but it meant that England ended the power play with sort of a, a subpar power play score. And there was also a game in Stafford, I think, where he was 19 off 20, maybe, at the end of the power play. So there's... It's, it, yeah, so it's, it's not asking Milan to change anything. It's not saying that England should, uh, you know, consider leaving Milan out. It's nothing like that. It's just that if England lose a wicket that early on, just put someone at the top of the order who is primed to... You know, when there's pace on the ball and, you know, new white ball to take that on and giving get, getting off to a flyer, even though they've lost one early. And then ideally Milan can come in, yeah, overs four, five, up to 10, take his time to get set and then really uh, take on the bowlers through the middle of the end, I think. I think it's just, it's a, a reasonably minor point, but also possibly an important one in a in a crunch game, I think. Joe, James asks, isn't it great that the selectors sent Moeen home to rest instead of playing the last two tests so he could be fresh for carrying the drinks for the white ball stuff? 
I think James is being a bit sarcastic there, isn't he? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's not not ideal, certainly. Um, but I don't think you can really say to O Morgan which which side you're going to pick for the first three to be twenties. Old Moen's not in it, so we're playing for the Test series. Unfortunately, that's just not how it plays out. It obviously looks silly, and it is a bit silly that he was missing for those Test series. We've done the rest and rotation policy to death. I think I think this this is what it this is how it was decided. Moen wanted to focus on white ball cricket, um, and you can absolutely see why. Uh, and I think. I'd expect he would still probably play at least one of the five in this series um, as much for kind of humanitarian reasons as anything else uh, or perhaps political reasons as well. Um, and he's still a big part of England's white ball plans. He is still by a distance England's second best spinner and more often than not you need two spinners in, in white ball cricket. So I can see why they've why they've got him for there even though he is currently warming the bench. On uh, India... Ishan Kishan was was amazing on debut in the second T20I. He scored 56 of 32. Uh, Kale Rahul has one run in three games. Uh, India have mixed up their top six a fair bit already. This series, Surya Kumar Yadav made his debut in the second game, didn't bat, dropped a catch and, and was then dropped for the third T20I. Um, Arijit asks, um, there isn't any logical explanation for Kishan not opening and Sky being dropped, is there? Well, I mean, the explanation is that India made a, you know, a predetermined decision to leave Rohit Sharma out for the first two games to rest him. And then obviously, well, in terms of his stature within Indian cricket, he obviously comes back in when he's uh, rested and available. And then that means that you don't have to rejig the team to accommodate him, which in this case meant that you have Rohit and Rahul, who have been India's preferred openers in T20 cricket, even though they actually haven't opened together all that much. Uh, and that means Kishan moves down to number three and I guess Suryakum Yadav is sort of the first in, uh, last in, first out sort of thing. So there is a bit of logic there, even though it is very harsh. But I think that India have, they've reaped the rewards often of uh, sort of sticking by players for a period of time. So I think that you see that in, in terms of one, once you're established, I think it can be hard to find a way out of the team. And that's actually worked for them, I think, with some of their batsmen. So, I mean, Rahane century at the... MCG was the vindication of having stuck with him through some tough times with the bat. The same with, uh, you know, Pajaras has some tough times with the bat where he sort of scored slowly, but batted a long time and he's stuck around. And that's kind of their general policy overall. Uh, so it's no huge surprise, I think, that that happened, even though I think, yeah, Suryaki Miyadav can feel a little bit hard done by that happened to him, I guess. India did end up with Vijay Shankar batting for the 50 over World Cup. Yeah. So I kind of think with India that uh, their, their biggest enemy is themselves it is like I kind of think like if when I was watching the second T20 game I thought when, when Kishan was batting like that I was like oh no if India have actually end up picking their best six batsmen everyone else is screwed um, but yeah I think I'd, lo- I'd love to see I, I loved watching Kishan bat but I'd love to see Sky play because he's been so good in the IPL for so long and he bats with kind of um, intent is the is, is the buzzword in T20 cricket nowadays, but he does bat with more intent than a lot of the other Indian guys at the moment. Um, yeah, don't know if any of you have any opinions on him playing. Well, I, I, it's not so much on him, but it's more it's more the intent thing where sort of that's the yeah is the buzzword as you say. But it, and I think it goes a little bit against what India actually value in their T20 batsmen. So Kara Hall is the obvious example who two years ago was one of the best T20 batsmen on the, the planet really was you know scoring hundreds of fun in international cricket was tearing up the IPL scoring quickly and consistently and then last year there was sort of like a mark change in his approach and he actually acknowledged it in interviews he said you know strike rate isn't the be all and end all like it's about winning games sort of thing but you're sort of wondering like what where has this come from essentially from a from batsman who used to score so freely and seemed that like you know all he was focused on was like trying to maximize every possible ball and it feels like that has probably come from within the Indian team and the way that they value consistency and, and the thing that the, the difference between once you're in the setup you're in is that if you're trying to get in you can often be treated quite uh harshly so Sanji Samps would be an example of that who like you know he batted as he has done in the IPL in Australia and came out tried score from ball one had a couple of failures had one okay knock I think and then was left out even though you know that was presumably the job he was picked to do and that's what he did and the same you've seen that with Rishabh Pant you know being left out of the T20 squads I think that that yeah, they, they do shoot themselves in the foot a little bit, not only with selection, but with how they ask those players to play once selection and the measure they send by who they select. On the intent of the batsmen, do you think there is such competition for places in Indian batting that 
it might actually dictate the way some of these players play as well, that they don't feel they can just go and smash 15 off four balls and then actually that's not too bad a job because they're just trying to justify their place in the side with looking at more old-fashioned things like average. Or, and that actually means that they're... Not that they're playing selfishly, but they're kind of looking over their shoulder. Um, particularly if actually that's the way the captain, Coley, often goes about his, his batting in T20 cricket as well. Well, I think part of the issue is in the IPL teams don't have the batting depth that interna- like top international sides have. So if you're batting the IPL, it is more, it is it is much more understandable for someone who's batting the top three to take their time because for a lot of teams, they just don't have the batsmen at five, six or seven who can uh, who can really trust to finish in innings against world-class bowlers. Whereas with India, with India's first choice T20 side, I know Ravage Jade is not there at the moment, but they could potentially have like Pandya at six, Jadeja at seven. Batting slowly and not giving those time those guys uh, enough balls at the end is not good. But if you're playing in the IPL, that that is fine because not many teams have that depth. Yeah, I also think it's an effective ODI cricket as well, where India's I think India's game plan on ODI cricket has rightly been skewed towards uh, you know batting reasonably big and batting their bowlers to defend it because their ODI attack has been so well set up for that. I mean, at the time when they had Chahal and Kuldeep Yadav bowling Rispin and Bumrah and Shami sort of leading the seam attack. That's, you know, two properly gun quicks who are going to take loads of wickets and spinners who are going to do the same. Uh, and that and, and, not, and none of them can really bat. So that means you're, you're right to sort of aim for 320 and back your bowlers to defend it. In T20 cricket, they have, well, Jadeja has now re-emerged as an ODI bowler, but he is a, a very good T20 player as well. So he gives you that batting depth in T20 cricket and it's not the same force in their bowling attack in T20 cricket. We should also mention they're missing Bumrah for this series, which is a big miss. Uh but that means that, yeah, they need to aim that little bit higher with the bat because they don't have the same bowling strength. They also have a bit more batting depth, which should allow them to to do that. So, yeah, I think, yeah. If it, But the thing is, is that, you know, you can say that India are struggling with, you know, they're not picking the best side and that sort of thing. If uh, Rohit Sharma or Virat Kohli fires in a World T20 semi-final or final, that's not really going to matter too much. I think even with the team they've picked, they're still one of the, the favourites. But, yeah, there probably are a few things that both in terms of their approach and their selection that could just be a little bit improved, I guess. Definitely. Um, Before we go on to the rest of the show, a quick message about our online shop. We're relaunching it next month. It'll be bigger and better than ever before. And we'll be hoping uh, that it'll become the go-to place for cricket fans to buy gifts for their friends, teammates and family members. Uh, Before the launch, we're running a sale on our commemorative World Cup t-shirts. They're half price at the moment. Um, one of them's got an image of Ben Stokes with his hands in the air after the famous bat deflection at the business end of the World Cup final. That's on the front of the shirt and there's a list of England's results from the tournament on the back of it. That, that is half price. You can head to wisdom.com forward slash shop to order one for yourself. Uh, an update on, on the pitches that we talked about a fair bit during the test series. The pitches used for the second and third tests of the India-England test series were awarded average ratings by the match referee thus escaping any sort of punishment ben very quickly uh, we had a look at how rare below average ratings are dished out basically not that often but there was one quite interesting example from the not too distant past yeah so when, when it was mostly as looking at it to be honest but uh we most of the pitches are actually been in the caribbean it's more been for uh lack of carry than anything else the pitches have got below average ratings but there was uh a mere poor surface uh within the last couple of years they got a below average rating uh where it said that from day one there was evidence of the ball breaking the pitch surface which resulted in uneven bounce throughout the match along with inconsistent turn which is even excessive at times this pitch produced a contest that was too heavily skewed in favor of the bowlers and didn't give the batsmen a fair chance to display their skills i think some england fans might feel that description could quite easily apply to the chennai second test pitch and the third test pitch at bad, possibly uh, forgive my ignorance, but who um, actually does the ratings? Is the umpires? It's the match referee, I think. Referee. So Trevor Giles for in this case, I think. Okay, I think it was David Boone for for that one. Yes, sorry, think, sorry for, yeah. for the Mirpur one. It's David yeah. Boone. Yes, but in yeah. there. Nice. Um, I think we'll leave that there. That's Please, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, moving on, uh, Jason Holder has been replaced as West Indies Test captain by Craig Brathwaite. Uh, Holder was famously given the job as a 23-year-old um, and is now replaced by Brathwaite, who led West Indies to that recent series win in Bangladesh. Joe, what do you make of that? It came as a bit of a surprise, I thought. 
It did. And when I saw the headline, I thought, oh, who can blame him for stepping down? He's, he's done it for a long time and it's a, often a bit of a thankless task. And then looking more uh, into it, it, it's clear that um, West Indies have made a decision themselves that they think Brathwaite deserves the job, uh, largely on the basis of what West Indies were able to do in Bangladesh with an understrength side, which was very impressive. But it, but it did come as a surprise. I mean, um, I get the cricket world kind of falls over itself to to say what a wonderful leader and captain Jason Holder what a good is. Man. And what a good man. And I mean, he does seem like all those things. Um, and he obviously led them impressively last year and English cricket was just so grateful for West Indies to come over here that I think he got a lot of kind of residual credit for that, even though perhaps... I don't know how much of it he actually had to do with it himself. But um, so it's, it's, it's a surprising development. It might not be the worst thing for him. I mean, if he didn't want to lose the job, then it will all smart a bit, I'm sure. But I think he could probably do with a, a break from that challenge, which is, as I say, not often um, doesn't come with a lot of victories, unfortunately, for West Indies cricket. Um so yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, it is, it is surprising that he's been moved aside, but maybe a little bit of renewal at this point is what West Indies cricket needs, what that test team needs. Yeah, I think, I think that, that that's a lot of that's right, basically. I think that um, it's, yeah, it's worth highlighting that he was so young when he got the job and he'd only play, he'd played fewer than 10 tests, I think, and obviously took it over in such turmoil and did such a good job. Almost like, you know, you get like, sort of, they call them turnaround CEOs, is it, I think? Uh, when you have a company that's sort of in crisis, and then they come in and do a good job of kind of steadying the ship, sort of bringing the fat and whatever. But then actually when it comes to sort of, you, when you've done that, they're often not the best person to lead you through the next period, I guess. I think West Indies might well... Like cricket Sam Allardyce. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> I think uh, I think West Indies might well feel that uh, as much as Jason Holder has been, a, he has been a very good figurehead, he's, a, he's very impressive, speaking. He, he leads the side well in that sense. But that, you know, the, and there have been impressive victories in that time. Those victories have also been impressive because of how unexpected they've been, and they might well feel that you know, with a, a, a you know an opener like Craig Brathwaite with you know Darren Brow at number four, number four, who's been a, you know really good with Jermaine Blackwood, with you know that that pace tag is a really really strong one. That actually Western should at this point now be pushing for a little bit more consistency, and maybe it's hard to see the team actually improving under Holder, even though he did steady the ship to begin with. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the obvious example to look back is that England series, actually, when West Indies really should have, I know England played the better cricket throughout, but West Indies should have won that because, you know, they played well enough to win the first game. And the second and third, there were only a session or a couple of sessions in each game from uh, from winning those. England had to really sort of, you know, race against the clock with both bat and ball to set up positions where they could force the win. And West Indies kind of crumbled. They didn't show much resistance toward the end of those games. Like, I think... Uh, possibly a, a, a more astute captain possibly is able to sort of rouse the team saying like just get your heads out. I know we're kind of under the pump but actually like we might be able to just steal a draw here and then all of a sudden you've got a, a drawn series or you've even won one I think that yeah I, th- I think that's probably the reason that it's essentially just down purely to the results not improving and I think that that's it's it's good that West Indies cricket is in a place where they feel they can make that decision I think the other thing as well is Craig Brathwaite's much younger than I think we all think he is. He's 28 years old. I sort of thought he was about 32, basically. But he made his he name as an 18-year-old. Yeah. He came in a long time ago. I mean, it's worth, another thing with Bradford, it's worth mentioning, he hasn't scored a Test 100 for getting over three years. Uh, he did all right uh, against England last summer, but he came into that series with... All, it was actually, his place was uh, supposedly under threat because he hasn't scored any runs at all. Uh, so that's something to watch. Jason Holder is always going to be in that best West Indies eleven. He's always going to be their best bowler. Uh, and, well, he's one of the best test all-rounders in the world. It's not like West Indies are awash with uh, batting options, so you'd think Brathwaite is pretty solid there, but you could see a situation developing where if his current form doesn't pick up and he's also captain, then it starts to become a really heavy burden for him, which was never going to be the issue with Holder. So it is an interesting one to follow, um, just to see how it goes over the next year or so. Yeah, I think... It shouldn't be underestimated that West Indies win with a weakened side in Bangladesh under Brathwaite was a really, really good win. You know, England uh, didn't win in Bangladesh last time they went. Australia didn't win in Bangladesh the last time they went. It's a hard place to go. So A, it was a really good result. And B, I wonder if our perception of Holder is, is greater than another place in the world. In Holder's time as captain, probably the standout result was beating England in the Caribbean in 2019. Um, West Indies have actually done pretty well against England throughout the Holder um, 
era. And also he just got a lot of credit for this kind of getting through the job that he was given he as a 23 year which he should. Which he a deserves. huge amount of sympathy, doesn't he? Which he deserves, yeah, yeah. which he deserves. But that, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the best person in the world to captain a test side. Yeah, I also think just the, the instant reaction, I think, from a lot of people in England is like, oh, this is West Indies cricket sort of shooting itself in the foot again. I don't think this is that really. I think you, you can certainly quibble with the decision for cricketing reasons, and it's yeah, certainly fair enough to do that. But I think this is a cricketing decision that's been made rather than, you know, background politics or anything like that. I think that, that, that it doesn't seem like that's the case in this instance. There was an ODI series between West Indies and Sri Lanka in the last week. West Indies won that 3-0. Um, Shea Hope scored millions of runs again, scored 250s uh, and 100. Um, ben, there was a rare sighting of someone being dismissed for obstructing the field. Mm, yeah, so uh, now means there have been 11 players uh, dismissed for obstructing the field in the history of international cricket, so you can make a whole team. Uh, Danushka Gunathilaka uh, opening the batting in the first ODI. It was actually a, a a very exciting start to the series and it was a good series overall I mean the uh, three close-ish games two well-matched sides and West Indies deserved winners but Kurumpolo took a brilliant court and bold and then this moment where he sort of uh he sort of blocked the ball down into the pitch but wasn't really sure where it had gone uh was called through or was sort of seemed like he was going to run through for a single his partner sort of ran a long way down and then he sent him back. And then as he was sort of looking around to see where the ball was to sort of get his bearings, he kicks the ball behind him, uh, which stops Pollard getting the ball and means that the batsman at the other end manages to get back in. Um, Kieran Pollard appealed. Uh, the TV umpire looked at it, said he was obstructing the field and uh, and gave him out. I think it was it caused quite a lot of uproar, I'd say, for, I mean, more than you expect from, from that series where not many people were watching it in real time. Um, I... Probably wouldn't have given it out, I think, if I had been the TV umpire. But I think I can see why he did it. I mean, he sort of you can see him sort of looking around and then he does obviously react to the ball just before he kicks it. Maybe he's it's just his peripheral vision. It's too late for him to get out of the way. But I can see just about how you interpret that, you know, on the balance probabilities as a willful movement. Uh, so, yeah, what, what I did enjoy was the West Indies' reaction to the... Uh, to the dismissal, which was uh, as if they sort of clean bowled him with a nine mile per hour Yorker, uh, which was uh, which was enjoyable. Um, but I, I think yeah, that's uh, and it's good for Kieran Pollard not not long in the job. Um, uh, and I think that that in a way that's sort of what Pollard brings to the to the role in that he's such an experienced cricketer and such an experienced cricketer winning tournaments around the world that he just has that mentality, that sort of win at all cost thing, and that's what he does as a T Twenty batsman. You know, he comes in late at the innings when things are seemingly lost and then just smashes it out of the park and this was you know him taking an extreme move by appealing for this and then you know celebrating wholeheartedly but that's kind of the attitude that's West Indies side needs I think yeah I mean I, I, he got a lot of stick for um just appealing in the first place which I, which I thought was unfair it's like it's not his decision whether it's out or not one uh thing that I found quite interesting from the series was how it impacts the ODI Cricket World Cup. Super You're angry league. about this, aren't you? I, well, I'm not angry. I, I'm, I'm feeling. I feel livid. sorry. I feel sorry for for Sri Lanka. It's not angry, um, just disappointed. It's yeah. disappointed in the the injustice of of the tournament. So, um, if you don't know about the ODI World Cup Super League, uh, where have you been? Where, a, where have you been? Um, B, it's basically how teams qualify for the 2023 World Cup. So, seven of those top 13 teams will qualify for the World Cup. The eighth is India, who qualify because they're hosts. Um, but kind of like the World Test Championship, not everyone plays everyone. Um, in the World Test Championship, if you have a slightly harsher set of fixtures, it doesn't really matter because there's no jeopardy for the sides who finish towards the bottom. Whereas here, it can be the difference between qualifying automatically for the World Cup or having to go through uh, the qualifying tournament. Um, and, well, Sri Lanka basically just have quite a hard fixture list, fixture list compared to some of their likely competitors for that eighth seventh spot um so if you it's a, it's kind of a it, it's kind of a crass measurement but if you go through each side and see how many series they have against teams that played in the 2019 world cup afghanistan have just five of their eight series against teams that were at the world cup um sri lanka have seven alongside india actually and australia um sri lanka also have f- four series against the world's top five ranked odi sides um afghanistan just have two 
Afghanistan also have three series against the bottom three sides in the tournament. Sri Lanka just have one. And considering you only need to finish eighth realistically to qualify automatically, Afghanistan could feasibly qualify for the World Cup just by thrashing the teams at the bottom. If they win nine games out of nine, um, that and nicking a couple of other games could see them qualify straight away. Um, and whereas Sri Lanka fin- have to face four of the top five sides in the world, which just doesn't seem that fair. I'm just surprised that that's been given the green light by all the balls involved. That's the most extreme example. There are some less extreme examples in there. but And have um, Sri Lanka made any noises about this? Are there, is is no. the kind of situation... I mean, their fans will suddenly... The problem is because you and Ben are the only two people in the world that have actually looked <laughs> ahead at all the fixture schedules. You don't. A lot of people won't be aware of this until it actually has already happened. Uh, but Sri Lanka fans will start looking at that table over the next few months and who they've got to come and be thinking, well, hang on here, this isn't fair at all. Uh, and this is often the problem with cricket. We don't, we, don't, we don't really catch up with the fine detail until it's a little bit too late. And, and we know from West Indies experience that the last World Cup qualifier, just how tough those qualifying tournaments are as well. West Indies snuck through infamously against Scotland um, when if the downpour had come a bit later Scotland might have might have knit them to that position so we know that if Sri Lanka go through to that qualifier it's not like they're guaranteed to qualify from that tournament by any means because there are lots of uh, kind of quite fast developing associate nations who will who will fancy that mm. and, and you make a good point it's this tournament doesn't end until early 2023 so we've got absolutely ages to go and also um, we can't claim to be the first people to work this out this was uh, evident when the fixtures released over two years ago um, it's just slightly more stark now given how um, g- given what the current rankings etc and the, um, the, also this series could hardly have gone worse for Sri Lanka from that's that the thing. point of that's view because so, so, uh, they obviously West Indies are a team who might well be a rival for that eighth spot to come the end of it and Sri Lanka didn't just not pick up any points they got a two point over eight penalty as well so after three games played they're minus two which is a uh, Pretty bleak for them. Yeah. It's a long way back from minus two. Yeah. <laughs> and Afghanistan have won won uh, their first series against Ireland 3-0. Bangladesh, who might be around that spot as well, they won their first series 3-0 against West Indies. So big big win for West Indies. But I, I do uh, genuinely quite like the fact that every game really, really matters. I think that third ODI in this series really matters. That could be a really big deal in two years down the line. It's just quite hard to... Um, to really get yourself up for it and 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 kind of see it as a massive World Cup qualifying game when it's three years away from the tournament. Yeah, and, and the tough thing as well is that when you're in a pandemic, you kind of when you know the fixture list gets so squashed, you kind of want a few meaningless games where you can play a second string team, yeah. and it's just, that has come at just the moment when there are no meaningless games basically, <laughs> uh, like it because because England actually are they going to be all right? Do you think? Because I mean, if if they if they, say they were to lose three nil to India. And they've only won what three of their first nine games. Is that is that danger time or is that probably still fine? I think England will be fine, um, even if they do lose three nil against India. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, at least two teams who played the 2019 World Cup will have to go through a qualifying tournament. Um, and Afghanistan finished last in the tournament. They didn't win a game in the 2019 World Cup. And if they qualify, then you have two teams that did okay in the 2019 World Cup, having to go through the tournament. So. But as um, you said, the, the boards have all rat- all the national boards have ratified this schedule. This isn't as though it was kind of foisted upon them by the ICC. Yeah. And I wonder, there must be a conflict here as well between, on the one hand, not wanting to play the top teams because you want to get as many wins under your belt as possible so you can go to the World Cup. But if you're Sri Lanka, wanting to play the top teams because they're the most lucrative contests in terms exactly. of TV broadcasting. And that, that's why Australia and India's uh, schedules are so hard, I think, because they wanted that kind of more high-profile fixture list. So, yeah. But I think also we've seen that balls don't always pay attention to the finer details as we've seen with, you know, various uh, super over deciders and uh, semi semi-finals deciders as well if you're England women. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week was uh, last week speaking to the ECB's new chairman or relatively new chairman, Ian Watmore, who I think was announced it was what like last february i think last year but started the job in september we've been hoping to speak to him for the magazine for a little while and i got uh kind of 45 minutes to an hour with him last week uh he was just freshly back from a kind of fleeting trip to india for the opening of that enormous stadium out there um and it was an interesting interview he's an interesting bloke to speak to he's certainly a departure from what we've 
seen before in that role. Uh, specifically in terms of he's come from outside cricket, as it were, in that the three previous ECB chairmen, um, Colin Graves, Giles Clark, David Morgan, were all chairman at counties before they got the top job. Ian Watmore is a lifelong fan of the game, grew up sporting Kent, but he's he's got no background in cricket. Uh, great in CV, though. A great CV, very interesting CV. So, yeah, I mean, for people who don't know much about him, he reported to five different prime ministers during his time as a senior civil servant. Uh, he was FA chief executive for just about a year in 2009, 2010, before leaving the job because he was kind of frustrated at the way it was it was run and also more broadly frustrated at the way international football was run. Uh, and he's been a very successful management consultant, spent five years as Accenture's UK managing director. He's also the father of a professional footballer, Duncan Watmore, who uh, is at Middlesbrough now, but people might know him from that. He was on the Sunderland documentary, wasn't he? Sunderland Till I Die. And he's also husband to a vicar. So, uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of points of interest of him. But more more to the point was actually just speaking to him. Um, he wouldn't be drawn on any comparisons with Colin Graves uh, when I tried to sort of push him in that direction, which is perfectly understandable. But he did also talk about himself in a way that it was quite clear that he will be a big departure from what has gone before. Um, he talks about wanting to lead in a collaborative rather than dictatorial way. Uh Interestingly, he talked about learning a lot about leadership from his time as a civil servant, from watching how politicians around him operate for the good and for the bad. He says in particular, Tony Blair, who, not getting into specific politics, but the way he led uh, in terms of trying to find the centre ground and getting as many people to that place as possible was basically how he wants to lead the ECB. And that obviously is a different approach to Colin Graves, who was very combative and managed to put a lot of noses out of joint in his time as ECB chairman. So look, the, the proof will be in the pudding, but he's an impressive man to speak to. Um, I found him likable for what it's worth. I mean, I think that is kind of important given what's gone before. People found A lot of people found Colin Graves really hard to get on board with. I don't think that's going to be the case with Ian Watmore. Um, and I think getting someone from outside cricket in the way they have, given all that's going on in English cricket, in terms of the 100 and this battle for the soul of English cricket, I think having someone come in who hasn't got the perceived biases of being at a specific county before was a really smart move. Um, and I think it's not fashionable to talk the ECB up, and I'll, I try not to do it too often, but I think in this case, they've been really smart in their appointment. Uh, and we'll see over the next few years whether it works, but I, I, I'm having spoken to him, I'm kind of cautiously optimistic. How should we... Do- judge his reign by the end of it what 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 does a good reign as ecb chairman look like well that's a really good question i I did put that to him he said part of it he said being in the civil service the key is to never be the story uh and he said there's an element of that in the ecb chairmanship as well you should not be front and center in the way that colin gray's often was because he would say something like his own domestic t20 competition is mediocre or he'd describe West Indies as mediocre before England took them on in the Test Series, which West Indies then won, I think. I think that was the Test Series. Um, I don't think we'll hit, be hearing those kind of things from Ian Watmore. I think it will be much more behind the scenes. Um, he hasn't given a huge amount of interviews since he got the job. I think he's he says himself he's a fan of cricket, but he has to learn a lot about the game. So I think there's been a kind of certain amount of uh, information building before he speaks to members of the press. Um, but I did I, the last question I asked him was how how he should be judged and and I've just got the quote here actually. Um, so yeah, he referred to the ECB's inspiring generations five year strategic plan, which ECB wording is to connect communities and inspire current and future future generations through cricket. Um, so he said, I said, how should you be judged? And he said, it sounds simple, but I think the most fundamental thing is, are we genuinely implementing the strategy? Or is it still words on a page? Are we really making positive moves on that? Or are we still saying, this is what we'd like to do? It's all just a bit difficult. So look, we'll see in a few years' time whether he does manage to make these things more than words on a page. But I think uh, my impression is now that the ECB is in a pretty good place and is appointing the right people for the right jobs. uh, Something that they probably haven't done in the past. Mm. It's a really interesting interview. um, And that's obviously part of the next issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly that comes out next week. We'll be talking about that in more depth next week um ben what's your moment of the week mine was uh afghanistan accidentally giving away an extra run during uh, a test against zimbabwe when uh, it was almost like an like an umpire's quiz question 
don't know if you saw this, Joe, uh, when uh, I think it was Sikander Raza, I think, was batting with the tail and uh, they wanted to keep him off strike, basically. And it was the last ball of the 91st over, I think. And he hit the ball out toward the point boundary and the ball stopped like almost comically short of the rope, essentially. I mean, they could have come back for three, uh, which would have left Raz on strike for the next over. Uh, but the fielder, as he picked up the ball, deliberately stepped across the rope as he picked up the ball in an attempt to concede four and then keep Raza off strike, uh, which is, uh, you know, might have thought it was being very clever, but is not allowed under the uh, the laws of the game. There's, a, there's rules about the willful misfields or willful conceding of overthrows, which means that the batsmen both get the run that was completed and the boundary as well. So they got five runs rather than just four. And in the end, it barely mattered at all. Uh, they bowled them out within four balls of the next over, I think. And uh, This must have been a moment of high excitement for you, though, as it was <laughs> unfolding, realising the, the regulations at play. Yeah, you know, it re- really was. Yeah, it was, uh, it was great. And, and also because a lot of people were calling it a penalty run. It wasn't really a penalty run. It's just that you get the runs in progress and then you also get the boundary. It's not like it's a five-run penalty for fake fielding. It's just you. Uh, that's how they calculate how many runs to give away in that instance. That sounds absolutely um, right. I, I'm sort of quite impressed they've thought of that. Mm that that actually scenario might take place. I suppose it's not necessarily that unusual that you'd want that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, the cricket laws are very thorough and just it's a good document to read in terms of taking, taking care of all the eventualities. <laughs> I'm sure um, the, the cricket lawmakers... It's a good document to read. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the cricket will be uh, glad to hear... They'll have that on the front it. of the next one. Ben Gardner, <laughs> wisdom says. But but just, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean... A rollicking read. This is, this is obviously a cricket podcast and not a rugby podcast but there, there was an incident in a six nations game recently where there was a sort of a, a possible knock-on from uh, one of the welsh players and i think it was it was a, a strange enough incident that a lot of people went to look at what the definition of a, a knock-on was and it's just it's basically doesn't exist in the rugby laws like they're so unthorough there's like a weird bit it's like but halfway through it says principle the game is not played by players on the floor and it's like how is this like a, a law book that you're supposed to sort of refer to and like actually decide things and it's so much of that game is down to interpretation which it doesn't actually have to be in cricket well, really well how, how do you know if it's deliberate or not if they if he wants the ball to go to, uh, to to the boundary so like if if the ball is coming towards a player on the boundary and they just let it through. How do you know that's a misfield? Mm. Yeah, that's true. So, so he we... could have just done it much more smartly yeah. and he'd have got away with it. There we go. Well, except for the fact that it, if, if the ball had been going towards the rope and he had made a bad effort to stop it, that would have been one thing. But it's the fact that the ball stopped short. That... He could have done like a trip, bit of a kick. Yeah, that's true. Over. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, unnecessary but, dive and push it to the to the yeah. rope. Yeah, obviously, obviously there are still debates over decisions within cricket. Obviously, uh, but uh, it's it's not because of the wording of the laws. It's more because of uh, whether someone did something deliberately or not, and that sort of thing. You know, it's a, which is a better place to be in, I'd say, than yeah. A, a test match also took place oh, yeah, sorry, between yeah. Afghanistan <laughs> and Zimbabwe. Yeah, um, Afghanistan won to level the series, um, but I thought the most interesting thing was um, that Rashid Khan bowled. Um, a 21st century record for the most overs bowled in a test match. I think it was 99 overs he yeah. bowled, which is uh, 30 more than he's ever bowled in a single season of the IPL in one test match. Um, and it was basically because Afghanistan only picked three bowlers. So it was... Um, well, they um, only picked three bowlers and then enforced the follow-on. Yeah. Which <laughs> seems, seems particularly hopeful. And, and then, unsurprisingly, Zimbabwe added like a near-record eighth-wicket partnership when they were all just dead on their feet and actually almost kind of won that game. Afghanistan were four wickets down when they eventually chased 100, having enforced the follow-on. Elsewhere, South Africa completed a 4-1 series win over India in India. Lizelle Lee scored 288 runs across the series. And she now overtakes Tammy Beaumont at the top of the ODI batting rankings. Um, yeah, so Beaumont's uh, reign at the top wasn't particularly long, but um, yeah, really good series uh, for South Africa. Yeah, um, Obviously, the, India haven't played that much recently, but still. That, that That's my favourite opening partnership to watch, possibly in, in all of world cricket, Lizelle and Laura Wolvart, where Laura Wolvart is just cover driving every ball and then Lizelle is smashing every ball over mid-wicket. Uh, but yeah, she, she's long threatened, I think, to go on a proper run the Zelli because she can hit sixes like almost maybe Shafali Verma is the only player in world cricket who can hit them as consistently and it's always felt like if she can just add that little bit then she's proper world beating batter and it looks like she's done that so tough gig for India though right 
hadn't played since the T20 World Cup final. Yeah, right? and, and in ODI cricket, not since... Um, well, so Mitali Raj uh, and Goswami were 36 the last time they played in ODI. They were both 38 uh, this time around. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, pretty tough gig. Yeah, yeah. But Mitali Raj got 10,000 international runs now across formats, which is an impressive achievement. First women to do that, which is mm. uh, yeah, amazing. Absolutely. Um, a bit of county cricket news that I'm just going to run through because there's quite a lot of it. Um, so Sarah Taylor has joined the coaching staff at Sussex to work with uh, the county's wicketkeepers. Uh, Daniel Bell Drummond has been named as Kent vice-captain, which will mean that he'll captain quite a lot, actually, because Sam Billings is at the IPL for the first eight or nine rounds of the county championship season. Durham have re-signed Cameron Bancroft. Scott Borthwick has been appointed the Durham captain. Andy Balburney will deputise for Marnus Labuschagne at the beginning of the season for Glamorgan. Miguel Cummings um, has signed for Kent for the first eight games of the season. Surrey have signed Kimar Roach for the first seven games of the season. Marcus Harris will play for Leicestershire in both the county championship and the Royal London One Day Cup. Um, finally, um, a... a Positive, happy note to end the show on. Um, a big congrats to Wisden's Tar Hashim, who uh, is obviously a regular on the show. Uh, he was commended in the ECB Domestic Journalism uh, Awards. He he was commended for the uh, Christopher Martin Jenkins Young Journalist of the Year. So well done, Tar, and all the other people who got um, awards and commendations in that. Um, that is the end of the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ben. This has been the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, Tell your friends we'll be back next week. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.